Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by Gott Wittenberg Emerson. The Gott name has been leading the local commercial real estate market since 1899, making it one of the oldest continuously operated businesses in Amarillo. Now, a lot has changed in 120 years, but excellent customer service and integrity remain their top priority. Gott Wittenberg Emerson offers both brokerage and full-service property management services with a team of dedicated professionals to meet your real estate needs. Learn more and see current listings at gwamarello.com. That's gwamarello.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Griffin Wink Advertising online at griffinwink.com and First Bank Southwest online at fbsw.com. Our January-February issue is on newsstands now, or you can read the free e-edition at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Gwen Hicks. Gwen is the executive director of Amarillo Angels, a nonprofit organization that walks alongside children, youth, and families in the foster care community. Now, Gwen founded the organization in 2016 after a long career in education. She went from teaching elementary school to serving as a junior high counselor to coordinating Head Start for Region 16. So we talk about how her education career cultivated in her a passion for seeing kids succeed and then how the challenges of the foster care system get in the way of that success. And Emerald Angels is working to help kids and their families find the success that is so often difficult within that environment. So there's a lot to talk about. Here's Gwen Hicks. Gwen Hicks, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here today. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to Absolutely. spend some time with you today. I'm excited to have you. I know that we have uh, spoken to each other multiple times in the past for different projects. I'm I'm glad to have you in the studio. And I, uh, I want to start with you the same way that I've started with all my guests, and that's to ask how you ended up in Amarillo in the first place. What brought you here? What brought me here was uh, WT okay. uh, in that area, bringing me to the area. I grew up in Odessa. Uh, and uh, moved up here in 19, a really long time ago, okay. and uh, and to come to school. And absolutely love this area, and met a guy, and we got married, and his business is, in Amor- is, in, is actually in Canyon, and so we've been here since then. So it's, okay. a, it's, a great, it's a great community. We love being here. So I don't want to date you too much, but I imagine if you <laughs> went okay. to WT, it was WTSU. Yes, sir, point, it was. Right? Okay. Yes, it was. Um, and how did, like, I mean, Odessa, there are good universities in mm-hmm. that part of West Texas. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you end up coming up here? Well, it's an interesting story. Um, I was involved in several things in high school. I was uh, on the yearbook staff. In, the, in the, my senior year, I was a yearbook editor. So we always went to yearbook camp at Tech. Okay. And um, I'm a first-gen college graduate in our family. Um, and so when we went, we'd go to that. It was something I knew. And we had actually gone to one Texas Tech football game when I was in junior high. And I thought, well, this is obviously where I need to go because this is the only thing I know about it. But I wanted to be a music major. That's what I started out as. And um, my choir director in high school, uh, Randy Talley, he's from here as well. And um, he brought us up um, a couple of times, uh, came up for uh, choir camp at WT, came up, did a show choir retreat up here at the High Plains Retreat Center. Now it's now the High Plains Retreat Center. And I 
just fell in love with the campus and the people on the campus, mm. the music program, and the community. I, you could tell immediately it was a warm place, and I just I just fell in love with it. Um, and I went home and told my mom and dad, this is where I want to go. I changed my mind. Okay. And they uh, they were okay, you know, with you? You know, they really weren't because oh, really? Okay. Well, <laughs> I was the first gen. Yeah. It was scary for them for me to go away. My birthday's in late July, so I was just barely 18. But the good news was my brother was here in Amarillo, and he was actually working for a local TV station at the okay. time. And so that made it better. He was here, so they felt a little more comfortable with it. It was very hard on them um, to let the baby out of the house and let her fly. But we did it. We teased. My mom is such a sweet, was such a sweetheart. And loved me and my brother so much and our family was so close and when she when she came to WT brought me to school quote unquote brought me to school I had everything in my car but I think my television at the time mm-hmm. and she was like oh no I need to bring your television and so she came and she she wouldn't go home she kept staying and staying and staying and <laughs> let me I was, adjust this TV set for you That's I was fun. making friends and people would come by and say you want to go to lunch my camp my mom's still here and they're like There's, she's still here and so my dad finally you know predate cell phones all that my dad finally said, you have to come home. Mm. (laughs) So it was hard. It was hard on her. We were very close. So tell me about your experience at WT as you tried to figure out, okay, career-wise, what am I going to do? Yes. You know, I was always wanting to be an educator. Again, you know, didn't have a ton of experience with other things. And in my mind, you were either, as a woman, as a young woman, you were either going to be an educator or a nurse. And I could not do nursing. I admire nurses so much, but that is not for me. A woman who's terrified of needles, that is not for me. Uh, And so I wanted to be an educator. I've always had a heart for children children, um, even from a little age, a young age. And so I began to, but I also loved music and I Mm -hmm. loved choral music and I wanted to be a choir director because I'd had such a great experience in the choral programs growing up in Odessa. And um, after a year, I realized that really wasn't for me. I decided it was really a better fit to just go general ed. Um, I didn't love theory, and I didn't love all those kinds of things. So I switched to general education, elementary education major, and absolutely enjoyed the rest of my time there. And it really did set me on a path for a lot of really exciting things later on in my life. So as after you graduated, you know, I, I know that there are always a lot of jobs available mm-hmm. for teachers, yes. especially elementary school teachers. Did you ever consider leaving this area or did you know at that point, okay, I, I'm going to be here, you know, yeah. my husband's here, the businesses are here, all that kind of absolutely. stuff. Like, was that just yeah, solid absolutely. We married very young. I okay. was 19. Oh, so we you married. were still, yes. okay. And so, yeah, it's not probably wouldn't work for everybody. It's worked great for us. We've been married 42 years. And um, and so we had started his, his business. He's an insurance agent. He'd started that um, business. And so we just ended up staying and um, we've never been, we've never had an opportunity to go anyplace else. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we love it here. And we would go if we needed to, but um, we absolutely love our community here. Tell me about your teaching career. Oh, okay. Well, um, I graduated in three years. Um, this was pre-dual uh, credit and all that stuff. Okay. I was just very, I've always been very driven. Wow, that's... And I was really trying to help my parents out, not not to linger so it okay. would cost more, you know, um, because it was a hardship for them to put me through school. And, and thankfully, they were able to do that without... Uh, coming out with any debt. Um, so I graduated in three years. And again, my birthday's in late July. So I turned 21 on in late July and started working at Sundown Lane in Canyon ISD just a few weeks later. Wow. And um, taught really yeah, 
<laughs> it was really young. It was kindergarten, so yeah, it was good. Okay. We were all good. Um, and uh, had a great experience in Canyon ISD. After my second year, we had our first child. And so I stayed home for about seven years. And when I went back, I went back to Canyon ISD um, in fifth grade and taught there for a while. And when my daughter was approaching fifth grade, our oldest was approach, approaching fifth grade, we decided I would go back to kindergarten, mm-hmm. kind of my first love. And um, did that until I started working on my master's. And I have a master's in counseling. And so then I went to uh, Westover Park, which is now West wait, West Plains, uh, junior right, high now, right. uh, and was a school counselor for six years. And um, during that time, I was very fortunate to work under a couple of amazing administrators who believed that we were all an administrative team, and I had a lot of got to have a lot of administrative experience as well. And I was contacted by a friend about possibly about a job at Region 16. Okay. And so I went to Region 16 as the Head Start coordinator, and that was an amazing job. And it's where my love for Support for the whole family unit kind of comes from. Okay. Always believed in that in the classroom. I knew that the home impacted the kiddos and, yeah, and the their kids life. who thrive yes. are coming from a place of stability yeah. often. A and lot of times, that's something yes. that yeah. that comes from the home. Yes, absolutely. And so when we that that Head Start that complete family support model was just brilliant to me. Uh, it's been around a long time, mm-hmm. and I loved that. And so what I did is I worked with I was the, coordinated the education pieces of that and the training pieces of the Head Start program was a liaison with all the school districts and the principals and and uh, the that we were had, we had classroom in all these different school districts and it was a really fun fun job and after about five years of that I was approached about maybe um, looking at going to the Bell Street office and I did and I became the director of instructional services and then soon thereafter I was promoted to uh, no that's not true I was a coordinator of instructional services and then I was promoted to the director of instructional services and that's where I finished out my education career that's a a lot of different (laughs) jobs it I was. Mean, within that world. Yeah, it was. It was a really unique career path, um, you know, and to get to that point and be able to serve the entire panhandle mm-hmm. was a real blessing and a joy. I loved every minute of that work. Yeah, I, I want to take advantage of, of your being here and, and ask about Region 16, because I imagine there's a lot of people, they know AISD, they know CISD, they know what teachers do, mm-hmm. and they know of Region 16 as being something educational but don't always know like the yes. role that it plays in the panhandle a, I mean, what can what can you tell me about it's an that? amazing uh, organization so in legislature in law there are it calls for a system of 20 uh, education service centers and the role of those education service centers are to support the curriculum instruction the pedagogy and um, to help school districts save money so um, I worked on, obviously, the instructional and pedagogy side, but it's everything from, oh, my goodness, and I hate to say this, I've been, I've been gone for a while, so oh, I don't right, want sure. to misspeak, but um, at the time that I was there, it's everything from, you look at a, a small community, maybe a, a Hartley or a Channing, and in that community, um, school finances is, is a lot. A, there's a lot to know there. And they may not have someone in that community who has the skill set to be um, their school finance person, okay. uh, manage that. So they actually have a co-op at Region 16, and you can they have people on staff there. So they can actually contract those services out so that that school district saves money. They don't have to pay for a whole 
a whole salary sure. and benefits, um, and they can do that. They have a paper co-op. They have a printing printing press uh, shop in the back. Okay. So the school districts can have their handbooks printed or whatever needs to be done. They have um, all the title services for, um, they oversee all of that for the area. It's just, it's a massive organization. Then the Head Start program is part of that. But it is so amazing to watch. I think most people think of, if they know anything about it, it's professional development for teachers. And Mm -hmm. that is true. School board trainings. um, It's just so many things. And they're always uh, internet services. Um, There's so many. They provide email addresses and things for districts that are are smaller. And for the rural schools, that is a huge benefit um, for them cost-saving-wise. And just to be able to have extra manpower that they wouldn't be able to have probably where they live or to be able to afford. And it's, that's a, a neat, it's, a neat, it's a neat concept. It is, and it's intriguing to me because, you know, we like to complain about government initiatives and state legislature and bureaucracies and all those mm-hmm. kinds of things, but, like, that literally fits within the, the category Region 16 does, and, and it helps people to do stuff. Mm-hmm. It helps teachers. It helps students. Yeah, absolutely. They were responsible for the technology department, was, was responsible for bringing the internet to some of the most like far-reaching parts of the panhandle where there was no internet um, uh, years ago, and I know they've been working on some other things that I don't have enough knowledge about okay. to be able to talk well, about. I'll let you out. Technology-wise, but it's an exciting it's exciting work, and you know, my heart has always gone out to those smaller school districts. Um, I remember um, we were doing a kind of a 360 review of a school district. We did some um, district audits and just because they wanted us to not, mm-hmm. not that we were no, we don't have any um, control or, you know, there's nothing regulatory about right. Region 16. Oversight sort of we thing. were just trying to help them, you know, how can we help you better? How do, what do you need? Tell us how we can support you better. And one of the teachers said, I said, when was the last time you got to go to Region 16 for a, professional development day. And she said, oh, we don't get to do that. I was like, oh. And she said, no, because we don't have any substitutes in our community. So if someone goes to Region 16 for a, for the day um, in, like, during the school week, our classes have to go into other classrooms. Wow. Okay. And so we, ha- we save all of our professional development for the summer. And that was just mind blowing to me, having worked, you know, predominantly in Canyon ISD. Well, completely in Canyon ISD, that was never an issue. We always had substitutes. Um, you know, being able to help them and support them in that way it was just—it was great fun. When did you retire? Probably mm, seven, eight years ago. Okay. Yes, and so yeah. And I, I put re- retire in quotation marks because <laughs> I know that you're not retired. I, I know it's just not. sort of a. Uh, I'm a the busiest shift. retired person yeah. you've ever seen. <laughs> you you shifted your focus a little I bit. Did. So tell me about that decision when you knew okay it's time for me to mm-hmm. move out of the educational mm-hmm. world and then. What happened next? Okay, well, um, Jason, I'm a I have a, a tremendous faith. I have a, a very deep faith, and so I just felt like and this is for people who aren't don't have that in their life. It may sound weird, um, but I just felt like it was God was telling me it was time, and I couldn't explain it. And it didn't. It wasn't on my timeline. I expected to work a few more years, um, but I just had this strong impression that it was time for me to go. And so educators typically retire at the end of August. And so mm-hmm. I did that. And I, but I knew there, I wanted to do some other things. I just didn't have a good picture of what that looked like. Well, fast forward a couple of weeks after I retired, my precious father-in-law, they lived out, they live out on some ranch land um, outside of Headley. Okay. And um, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, he had to have a very, very um, serious 
back surgery and okay. it was very dangerous. And so they recovery from that is very hard, very, very hard. And, um, they knew it was going to be risky. He, because of some other health concerns that he had and they came in off the ranch and my mother-in-law was staying with us. Obviously she didn't want to run back and forth that far. He had the surgery. It was successful. And, um, but it was a long recovery, about seven weeks of recovery. And, um, he was having some symptoms that were very explainable about from the, you know, this actual surgery. Um, and he was in rehab and anyway, they called the night before they were supposed to go home. And my mother-in-law came and got my husband and said, your dad's fallen. And they've taken him to the hospital. Do you want to go with me? And he was like, well, of course. Anyway, he had, what had happened, he had a very deep brain bleed that we didn't realize. And he fell and hit his head. He was on blood thinners and he didn't survive that. So the next day she had a stroke coming down the stairs of our house. So it was, it was a very turbulent time. So I was really grateful. She stayed with us for many, many weeks until she went through her rehab and we got some things situated and we got her settled in her new place. She lives in downtown Amarillo Mm -hmm. at the park, uh, park place. And now, and um, we were grateful. I was so grateful to be able to be there and help her and help my husband. A lot of things change. Yes. And then we rocked along a couple months. She moved in, you know, right at the first of the year. And then a couple of months later, my mom, who was widowed, um, had had moved here and had lived here for several years uh, and also lived at Park Place. And she became ill. And uh, we found out in March that she had a a treatable but not curable, very rare cancer. And and anyway, unexpectedly, she passed away in June. So we lost two parents in six months. And so I was like, okay, now I get it. Now I know why I was supposed to retire because taking mom back and forth to doctor's appointments and things like that, she wasn't able to drive. And it was a, I was a blessing and it's so sweet to get to be a part of that. And I know I just saw that you, uh, your anniversary of your dad just passed not too long ago. And I'm anxious to listen to that podcast, but, um, you know what that's like. It's a very sweet, bittersweet time. And, uh, so grateful that I was able to do that. Um, so then, you know, uh, things started to progress from there. I, I was working um, as a contract person for a national educational publisher, and I was traveling all over the U.S. and um, training teachers and administrators, having a blast doing that and trying to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. And uh, got to go to China two summers in okay. a row and help start a school over there. And I went to Hungary and taught English one summer with a good friend of mine that I actually my roommate from WT. And um, yeah, just kind of kept plugging along and trying to figure figure out what was next. And we should say, like, you were not typical retirement age. I mean, it's, it's not well, like... Well, yes, I, mean, I was I mean, able to retire at 54. So, right, yeah. and 54. People think, well, you know, you're 70, you should retire now. And that was not your situation. You no. still had a lot of energy. You still yeah. had a lot to give. Yeah, you know? I wanted and, to give back because I had had so much poured into me. And my granddad used to say, I may, I may wear out, but I'm not going to rust up. And that's kind of my philosophy about things, too. Why take all that was given to me, leadership, grant writing, budget work, personnel, um, you know, education, uh, just all the things that have been poured into me for so many years and just set it on a shelf. You Mm -hmm. know, I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to be able to take it and use it in a different way. And yet you ended up in the nonprofit world. I did. And I still feel like that was sort of accidental, you know, like, or it wasn't something that you envisioned for yourself. I mean, you were never, saw you were myself. working in education mm-hmm. still, you were contracting, mm-hmm. you were traveling everywhere. 
um, that you still ended up on a different path. I did. I did. And uh, my nephew and his wife are the most amazing, one of the most amazing young couples I've ever met. And and they were fostering to adopt. And when I was at Sundown Lane and when I was at Westover Park, um, High Plains Children's Home is in that attendance area. And so I got to work with a lot of kiddos who were experiencing foster care. Mm-hmm. And obviously kids are near and dear to my heart. Um, I watched uh, my nephew and his wife walk through the process of fostering and it is joyous and it is beautiful and it is hard and it is difficult and it is um, sometimes there's a lot of grief there. Mm-hmm. Um, and i just began, my heart just began to turn more and more to that. And so I just, I became a CASA because okay. I, I love what CASA does. It's incredible. Um, and I also, but I didn't feel like that was what it was. I just kept thinking this is part of it, but I don't know what it was. And CASA itself is a pretty big commitment. It's you know, a big commitment. When you become one of those volunteers. Yes, it's an, and it's amazing. And it's the legal advocacy mm-hmm. and helping support that for these sweet kiddos. Um, and um, I loved it, and it was good, but it still wasn't. didn't feel like it was the right thing. And I was actually sitting outside another nonprofit sharing hope one day. I was going to go in and visit with them. After everything settled down, we got mom's estate, you know, handled and all those things it was time to start figuring it out again and so um, I began to just go and look at different nonprofits to see what it was I was supposed to do I really believed what I was supposed to do was relation based like relationship based and so went in and talked to them but while I was was there early because Bill and Dorothy raised me to always be early and um, I was sitting outside and I was just reading a blog post from a writer I rarely read and it mentions an organization called Austin Angels and it was about foster care and they were having a fundraiser and this person was just linking that fundraiser but also had the the, the link so I could mm-hmm. click on it. Well, I clicked on it and began to read oh I got so excited because it just made such sense to me it made perfect sense having observed um, what I had observed in the foster care world um, for the months that I was working at Casa and with my family and other kiddos that I knew. And I just, I put it down, went in for the interview, came out, and what they had was amazing, but it wasn't the relationship-based thing that I felt like I was being called to. Got back on my phone and could not let it go, hmm. could not let it go. Finally, I reached out to Austin Angels and said, hey, I'd love to chat with someone about what this could look like and what it would take to start something like this here. And they connected me with Susan Ramirez, the CEO of Austin Angels at the time. And we had about a two-hour conversation. And through that conversation, I, I was thinking I could write a grant. I could start something like this. It would be so amazing for the families that are experiencing what Austin and Lizzie, my nephew and his wife, were experiencing. And there were so many others. And, and the, the, the kiddos that I was, I was uh, the CASA for and um, their families and things. And so I, I, we decided in the course of conversation, she said, now listen, I am speaking way out of turn because <laughs> I have not spoken to my board about this, but what would you think about piloting expansion for Austin? And I sat there for a minute. I said, well, that seems to make a lot of sense. It would be a lot easier to just, she said, we don't care um, like we want to help kids everywhere. We don't care where it is. And so we decided we would, she would pursue it. I would pr- kind of put out some feelers here. Um, she talked to her board and that was probably in the spring, this, this coming spring will be seven years ago. Okay. And um, we just kept moving forward. I kept knocking on some doors and asking people, is this something that's needed? Is it something that is um, you know, important? Is this something, is somebody else doing this because I don't want to reinvent the wheel? That seems redundant. And, 
Now we just had those guys. Everybody's like, no, it's needed and mm-hmm. it's amazing. And we can't wait for you to get started. Um, one one uh, group I spoke to, they, they're a faith-based group. And they was like, listen, we've been praying for something like this. You're an answer to prayer. And so I just kept walking forward and they just kept walking forward. And so we signed the papers and for be the first chapter for um, expansion for Austin Angels in um, the fall of 2016. And we launched to the public here. Amarillo Angels launched to the public here in January of 2017. And that's really interesting to me because it almost takes, you know, borrows from the franchising model, you know, in the business world to say, we've exactly. started this business here. We think this business would work somewhere else. Yeah. And so you can take it and replicate it over here. Yes. And you don't hear about that very often it's very scalable. in the nonprofit yes. mm-hmm. sphere. And as a result, there's a lot of nonprofits that are kind of doing the same thing. They've got different names, a little bit different format, but like it, it feels very efficient to me. And I'm always surprised knowing your story that we don't hear about more than that. Yeah. You know, it was working in Austin. Amarillo had the same need. Mm-hmm. Let's just take the same model That's and right. just plant it here. Let's just plant it here. And what's really cool about this, Jason, is that at the end of 17, they were we were reviewing like how it went. I mean, we were in contact the whole year, don't get me wrong, but and they realized what they had was scalable and it could be replicated. And so they created National Angels. And now there are 21 chapters across okay. the country doing the same work. So and you, you broke some, helped them break some ground. Helped them break then. some ground. And so we that's because of the amazing community that Amarillo is. Do you still have a legal relationship as a chapter oh, yes. of, mm-hmm. of National Angels, I guess, at this point? So Absolutely. you did never spin off or, no, or have to do anything no. different. And it's done nothing but get bigger and better. Mm-hmm. And um, there, it's just incredible to watch the growth. You know, we we laugh because um, you know they, it was just so new. And you know, I would get trained. One of the the case manager was training me on case management while she was in the, her laundry room folding her laundry, and I was at the discount tire waiting room waiting on my tires. And so now. <laughs> It's a, you know, a very formal process and it just has gotten more, the infrastructure has increased and grown and it's just better and better and better with every chapter that is onboarded. So for, for listeners who don't know the need that Amarillo Angels meets, Mm -hmm. um, you know, give us, give us the, uh, the broad strokes of of what the organization does, what it's accomplished and, and why it's necessary. Our mission is to walk alongside the children, youth, and families that are experiencing foster care and provide consistent support for them. Um, can I dazzle you with some statistics? Go for it. <laughs> okay. You have good s- statistics. I, I, I've love, heard them I before, love stories, so. but statistics are the reason, are a lot of why we do what we do. And then the stories are the outcome of that. Um, so half of new foster families, they will close their homes in the in the first year that they're fostering. And the number one reason given for any foster home closing is that they feel that there's a lack of support. They just don't have. It is a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a lot to be done. There is a lot that has to happen. Um, so they'll try it, which yes, is a big step. Yes, And then they'll huge. say, oh, man, we just can't do this. Even the process to even get to the point to be licensed is massive. And then um, there's so much that goes on there. Um, and without support, it's very hard. If that home closes, those kiddos have to move. Yeah, They have to go somewhere else. And the average number of times those children, those sweet children who are in this system by no fault of their own, they, they move an average of seven times every two years. Yeah. 
And that's seven new homes, possibly seven new sets of parents, seven new sets of siblings, um, possibly seven new schools, seven new teachers trying to make friends um, seven times. It just, it is a lot for a kiddo who already has been through a lot. Yeah. And statistically, every time they move, they go back. Setting them back, whether mm-hmm. educationally or emotionally. Exactly. I mean, all, right. It impacts everything. It's I mean, gre- it's we know how hard it is just for your mom and dad to move to a new town, you know, mm-hmm. when you're in middle school. That's right. And they're doing this seven times in a couple of years. Yeah, it's grief upon grief upon grief. And every time that my educator heart, this is what just gets me and I just can't stand it, is that every time they move, they're very likely to go backwards in their educational attainment four to six months. So they're very quickly, if they were on grade level mm-hmm. uh, when they went into placement, then they could very quickly be years behind. Um, exponentially behind. And so we have a program called the Love Box Program, and that is designed for just people, you, me, whoever who wants to be, who feels a, a tug in their heart for this and wants to be a support system for these families. Um, groups of people that come alongside these families and say, I will be there for you. Um, we we have a wonderful uh, lady that's actually going to be coming on our board, and her story, she's a very experienced foster parent, um, and her story is that once they they felt that it was their calling to be a foster parent. And as soon as they made that decision, she said, we just saw our support system begin to just slowly drift away. Even family, they weren't in agreement with um, them fostering. And so you're, and all you're that comes along new with people it. people into a, a Well, there's a, there's a whole lot hard. there, and that's not my story to tell, but they weren't in agreement. So they were like, well... You know, okay. So even families slipped away. She said, you know, people don't invite families of eight over for dinner. They just don't do it. And and so she said, we found ourselves in our community, but still very isolated. Um, and so that is the reason why we want to be there for them. Some, some foster parents have incredible communities already around them, but it can never be too much. Mm-hmm. My nephew and his wife were surrounded by an amazing community, and it was still hard. It was hard. It was an emotional roller coaster at times. And, you know, kiddos that came into their home that had been horribly um, abused, we watched them come and love, be loved by, our, by all of our family, the whole family and, and their church community, and then they would need to leave mm-hmm. um, because maybe their needs were greater than that fam- than my, my nephew and his wife were licensed for, um, the little boy that was had a traumatic brain injury and vision issues because he'd been thrown against the wall so many wow. times. The little girl who came in precious, oh my gosh, so lively and bright. And but every time they would hear us, she would hear a siren, she would scream, run, hide, it's the cops. Um, just thinking that they're gonna adopt and that didn't work out. And then when they did finally adopt, um, you know, the process has to work itself out. And it's it is an emotional roller coaster. It was, you know, going in and trying the parents, one of the parents was trying to, to maintain custody, to get custody. Mm-hmm. And it went all the way to the Texas Supreme Court before wow. they finally were able to officially adopt. And, you know, every time, okay, we won that court battle now, oh, here go, here we go again. You know, and this is the, these are the only parents that this little girl ever knew. She came to their home when she was an infant. And she's, you know, two and a half, three years old at this point. And the thought of 
yeah. you know, having together. It was grief. It was grief upon grief for them as well. So and joy and happiness as well. And we had a great celebration when we were able to um, adopt. Those little guys were officially adopted into but our the, family. There's nothing easy. No, well, about there's the it's, I mean, yeah, it's tough. it can be easy to love a kid, it's tough, and, and, yeah. and that's there. But there's so many complicating yeah, factors. That, absolutely, and and legal factors, and mm-hmm. and things that have to happen, and and that there's good reasons for that. You know, so to have someone there who's intentionally there, who's not paid to be there, who's going to be that steady person in a in a family's life, and a group of people who'll come alongside them and love them and just cheer them on and encourage them and give them that support that they so desperately need. Sometimes families need groceries. Sometimes a kinship family might like we had a family the other day and they they brought in like one of our families has brought in four of their family members kiddos. The mom literally had to quit work because of all the appointments and things and counseling sessions and and um, you know meetings with caseworkers and things like that. So you know they might need you know help with groceries every mm-hmm. month. Another family might just need hey can you just call and check on us? Can you just come sit on the porch? We have a family that when we we met we matched the family with their love box group. The dad finally we got down to brass tacks and he said can you just come and play with the kids so I can have a conversation with my wife? Cause we don't get to talk anymore. And that's what that love box group did. They came and sat on the driveway with the kids. Mom and dad were over there cleaning out the flower bed and talking and then sat hmm. on the porch and drank something. And they said, you can't imagine what that meant to have that time just to reconnect with my spouse. So it can look like so many different things. It's very, very customized. So that's the love box group. And the reason we do that is because we want to try to do everything in our power to increase placement longevity. Okay. And so that's what that purpose of that is. And it's for anyone in our community that wants to do that. We will walk you through the process. We'll take care of all the details. We'll do the background checks. We'll train you. Our case management team will be there for you for resources and other things and also for the family. So then you rock along, Jason, and only about half the kiddos will graduate from high school that are in foster care. And they can go to tech in Texas, any state school tuition free. Yeah. And our amazing West Texas A&M University is they can go completely free. Um, it's a supervised independent living campus and everything is free if they can, if we can get them there and they can have the skill set that they need. Only 3% take advantage of that. And that's, that's astonishing. It is astonishing for you and I, um, but in their world, it, it may not be astonishing at all. Because they don't, I mean, like you said yeah. you were a first-generation college yes. student. Like, yeah. It's likely that they were too, and they don't have that exactly. support system always Not to always. Mm-hmm. say to that to this that. is a path for you. Yes. So of the 97% who don't take advantage of that, who because they have to literally stay within the umbrella of the system, it's different, but they have to stay in the umbrella of the system, and they don't want to do that. Of that 97%, in the next year after they, they age out of the system, two-thirds, two-thirds of those kiddos are going to be homeless incarcerated, trafficked, or dead. And that's our why. We want to change all these stats. We want to make sure, as Emerald Angels, we want to make sure that we can do everything in our power as a community. And we are the the organization that we, you know, run it through us. And we we want to make sure we can do that to change those stats for those kids and these families. When you see that, it breaks my heart, you know? It just, I can't, I couldn't sit back and go, oh, well, That's I hope shame. that works out for those yeah. kids, knowing the skills that I had, knowing that the, the gifts and talents that I've been given. And it's this beautiful sweet spot between my heart and passion for kids and families and my skill set 
and my and my faith. It mm-hmm. all kind of it's like a big old Venn diagram, and it's this beautiful sweet spot. It's been one of the biggest joys of my life. To help on the uh, the uh, with the older kids, we have our Dare to Dream mentoring program, which is one on one mentoring. It starts at age eleven, and goes up to twenty two ish. I always say, and okay. um, we we want to connect a community members one on one who can help a student, help a, help a kiddo have a plan for aging out and know and be ready um, and help them with all the skills that they're going to need to be able to be successful with the, the next chapter of their life. Is there anything particular in this area related to the foster care problem? And I say problem in terms of knowing those statistics. Like, mm-hmm. is, is anything different uh, in the panhandle in terms of what's available to foster families or the numbers of kids. I mean, Mm -hmm. are are, are we pretty similar to what Mm -hmm. it's like throughout the state? You know, I would say that um, that's a great question. Uh, And I think it, I think there are some differences. I think based on, and and even uh, nationally, what I know from our other chapters, we cover the top of the Panhandle down past Lubbock, all of the Department of Family and Protective Services region one. And um, so we cover a very wide area um, and so I think what we see in our area, which is really part of what I love about our area, is there's this wonderful collaboration. There's no territorial, there's nothing's territorial. Um, so between the placement agencies and the bridge and CASA and, um, you know, all the things that are happening in the foster care world, we the Rainbow Room, mm-hmm. um, CPS, St. Francis, everybody that's involved it is this beautiful, like, we just want to help these kids. And every single person that I have met in that is working toward that goal is single-minded and, like, laser-focused. And we just, what can we do together mm-hmm. to, to help these kiddos? And we all play, it's like different parts of the body. We all play different roles, but we're all working toward the same goal. I want to ask you one more question, and it's, you know, you've you've worked in this area as an educator in a mm-hmm. variety of ways, uh, and then now the past seven or eight years in the nonprofit world. Has, has that nonprofit work helped you understand maybe the people here in a oh, different way a than you did way. as a teacher or as an administrator? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I may get teary because it's so tender to me that how kind and generous our community is like they want to help so much. I went to an Advent dinner last night and they invited me to come and speak and they wanted to know more about what we do. And they collected, you know, a donation for us. Um, We do donation drives. We do lots of events with Emerald Angels, big family events, because we want the families to have these experiences that they may not be able to. Um, Back um, before the holidays, we had our Christmas party and we were able to um, send all of our families that wanted to go to Maxwell's for Mm -hmm. an evening of fun. Um, That's something that many of them could, wouldn't be able to do financially because I don't know anybody who's fostering that's going forward financially. They all seem to be, um, you know, it's a very, it's hard on the budget. Yeah. It's hard on the kids and the family. And that's why what we do is so important because it, it supports every single person in that family, not, not just the kiddos that are in foster care. That's a unique thing about us. Um, the, but the parents and the bio kiddos and the kiddos that are adopted and it's just the whole family unit. So they all get to go and do that. Well, that can be expensive when you have eight people in your home. Um, and that may not be in the budget at Christmas time. So we do that. We do these donation drives before those events. We do a back to school event, a spring event, and we do these donation drives and, we just say this is what we're looking for because we want to do one-time love boxes for um, each of those people that come to those events. We are blown away by 
the generosity of the community. They just keep giving and giving and giving because they want to, they want to be a part of the solution. And I love that about our community. And I've met so many people that I didn't know before that were, weren't in school world. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredible. The businesses, the, the churches, the, the Amarillo area foundation folks, it's just, it just goes on and on and on. And, and, you know, the Bivens foundation and all the people that are there, it's, it's an incredible community. And I mean, just witness the panel to gives that happened a yeah. while back. It was unbelievable. Well, you know, they, they set a, a $6 million goal and everybody <laughs> thinks, Ooh, that's really ambitious. Yes. And then it, you know, they just blow it away. It, and well, it, it's the people it's, it's, it's the people in our community who care and want our community to be a great place for everyone. It's amazing. This week's episode is supported by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist since I was in college, and he's taken care of my kids' teeth ever since, well, my kids' teeth started to show up. Owen, uh, my son, is home from college on winter break, and he just had an appointment at Shimon Dental. Dr. Sauer is a national speaker on Invisalign and uses that technology to improve his patients' smiles and positioning, and we're lucky to have that kind of expertise here in the Panhandle. Learn more by following Shimon Dental on Facebook or visit shimondental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. Okay, I'm back with Gwen Hicks. Gwen, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. Love them. On the WT campus. Mm -hmm. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its paleontology collection includes the fossilized skull of a triceratops, which would have been 25 feet long and weighed up to eight tons. That skull is one of my favorite uh, elements of their collection. Mine too. I just always go and stand in front of it and look at it. So uh, you can learn more. You can see it at panhandleplains.org. Okay, first question. When you think of Amarillo or Amarillo Canyon 10 Mm -hmm. years from now, what do you hope for? I just think there's so many things that I hope for this area. We have so many great things going on already. So I hope that continues. I I hope that we don't become a community that becomes splintered. Um, I hope that we become more and more in sync and we all work together, um, shoulder to shoulder, to make this a better place. But especially for the, the kids and the youth and the families of this area, I want them to have those kiddos, any kiddo, I want them to have people in their life who truly care about them, who know the color of their eyes and the the dreams and the desires in their heart and want to be there beside them to help them reach those goals. I think that's mo- the most incredible thing we can do. And I think about all the organizations that we partner with, um, the children's homes and um, Story Bridge and Colorful Closets and, you know, the bridge. And I, I think that um, I hope we work ourselves out of a job. Yeah, because we've made such an impact, and I think that would be incredible. Because yeah, I think that's a goal that, of every yeah, nonprofit. Absolutely. We shouldn't have to exist. That's right. Let's yeah. try to fix this, let's, and maybe we won't be necessary. Yeah, wouldn't that be fantastic? And I don't know how to make that happen. Yeah, uh, I can only work on my little corner of the world, but I think that would be so amazing. The kids are our next generation. We want them to come through healthy and well-adjusted, mental health uh, intact, um, educated. I just think there's so many things we want for them. That's what I would hope is that in 10 years we would be in a place where they're they're thriving and growing even more so than they are today. Okay, other than wind, what does this area <laughs> have too much of? <laughs> well, you took my answer, as the kids used to say. He stole my answer. Um, I would, the first thing that came to my mind, comes to my mind with this is homeless. Mm-hmm. I My heart breaks every time I see 
um, someone who's homeless. And then knowing the, the, the tie-in with foster care, my heart just thinks, what, what is going on? And then there's the mental health side of that. And I, I wish we could, I wish there were not as many homeless. Um, that's what, that would be the one thing I think we have too much of. Yeah. And I know that there are plenty of organizations serving them. groups. Yes. And there's a lot of resources and it's, it's, sometimes they don't get connected to it. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're not able, mm-hmm. you know, to take advantage of them. I mean, it's we, we always treat it as, mm-hmm. well, that's an easy problem. They need to go to the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. But it's not always that easy. It's not always that easy. And it's very complex and it's very multifaceted and it's very individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the reasons for people being in homeless, I know we, we we serve a family and the girls were homeless for many years and and they'll drive by someplace with their, in their new forever family and they'll say, that's where we slept when we were homeless. Oh, wow. And um, so I, it, yeah, it breaks my heart. I, 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 I don't, it hurts me. It hurts my heart. And I wish we, I wish there were fewer of them. What does this area not have enough of? Okay. I'm gonna get a little sassy here. So... <laughs> I don't think we have enough people who know how to merge appropriately on the highway. <laughs> you have Say got that to again. yield. Say that again. <laughs> if you are coming on the highway, it is your job to yield. Or <laughs> I know my wife is tired of me yelling at the driver in front of me who is going too slow at the, you know, mm-hmm. at the Because at you're the afraid entrance. you're going to get hit. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Don't hesitate. Just get yeah, on in there. Yeah. And if you're coming on, you got to yield to the people that are already on the highway. Mm-hmm. And coming off, you got to yield. So, yes, that's the one thing I would change. Okay. I appreciate that. <laughs> When you talk to outsiders about Amarillo, what do you talk about? Oh, again, the amazing people. I have a good friend from high school, and she's like, why do you want to live there? I'm like, she lives in a big city. And mm-hmm. um, I'm like, because it's amazing. And you don't, you're, you're not here. The most giving, caring, generous people um, who have the tremendous work ethic and have a heart uh, for helping and it's incredible. Um, we have everything you could ever want. We've got ballet. We've got we've got symphony. We've got music. We've got the university. We've got education. We've got um, fantastic weather most of the time. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's just a great place to be. What's your favorite local neighborhood? Well, it's probably I don't I'm probably the answer most people a lot of people would give. I love just to drive through the Wolfland neighborhood. Mm-hmm. If I'm anywhere close and I'm headed back to the office, we office downtown, I will make a swing through just because it's I don't know, it's so beautiful and it's so um, those big trees growing up in Odessa, Texas, we did not have those. And I just think it's just beautiful every season and it just kind of fills my cup up a little bit just to drive through. That's interesting for you to compare it to Odessa. Because a lot of times people in Amarillo are like, yeah, we don't have many trees. We don't oh, have great trees here. Oh, we are good. <laughs> we they, are good. they didn't have a visionary who planted all those elm trees in 1920? Uh, like there there are a few places, okay. but um, not not like that. Um, we, we tease when people come here to visit. My husband will pick them up at the airport and take them to um, uh, the, par- what is it? the park on the where the Wonderland is. Oh, um, the Thompson Park. Thompson Park. And say, here's our trees. Mm-hmm. We <laughs> keep them all we here. Really, but we really do have more trees and natural vegetation than where I grew up. And it has a beauty all its own. Yeah. I love it up here. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? Ooh, that's so hard because we love to eat everywhere. Um, so I would say probably my favorite local restaurant would be we love to eat at um, the Lazy Gator. Mm-hmm. Those sweet potato fries, ooh, they're good. We love that one. Um, food truck, um, we love um, the folks at um, uh, Soda Jerks. They're so great. Okay. We love them. And and then, I mean, there's so many others. How can you how can you choose just one? You well, know, yeah. it's tough. We love to eat out, so 
we we were very very helpful during the pandemic. We would we would where are we going to go get dinner from today? That's so right. That's right. It was really fun. But there's so many great restaurants and such great food here. What's your favorite local coffee shop? You know, I'm I'm not a coffee drinker. I'm a tea drinker, but I love to hang out at the Palace okay. on Wolfland. For they a, have some for tea a, options. Oh, there they too, do. So. They absolutely do, and they have you know lots of good hot drinks and stuff like that. For a lady who doesn't drink coffee, I spend a lot of time in coffee shops. It's okay. such a great atmosphere for meetings, and you get to connect with people there, and everybody knows where it is, and it's such a beautiful space. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love hanging out there. Okay, and last question: When was the last time you visited Paladero Canyon? The last time I visited was a while back. My brother was getting married, and he was getting married on the beach in Florida. Mm-hmm. And they called the week before and said, it was just me, them, and the preacher, and a, a couple of witnesses. We were flying in. We are going to surprise him. We didn't tell him. He didn't know. Um, and um, a hurricane was okay. headed their way and supposed to land right about the time they yeah. were supposed to get married. So Always a danger. Though. They had been out here. We had gone out on the, with the Paladero Jeep tours. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with them. Um, and they had taken us out while they were here in the summer. And they just, she, his, his fiance had never been here. And so they just kind of fell in love with it. Get to see such beautiful terrain that you don't get to see in the park, which is amazing as well. And so, um, so I jokingly said, well, I guess you can come out here and get married on Yellow Bear Bluff. And they got real quiet. And they went, are you serious? I was like, well, yeah. So we turned that that thing around, and uh, they came out, and Paladura Jeep Tours took us out okay. there, and they stood out on that bluff on and on ten ten of twenty twenty, and, right. and they said I do at ten ten in the morning, and okay. it was such a fun day, and we had such a good time. Beautiful, beautiful space. All right, that's a that's a good <laughs> Paladura Canyon story. It is. All right, well, Gwen, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? I think um, I'm obviously going to go back to Amarillo Angels here and let you know that we have a fundraiser on April the 1st, no joke. And it is called Mom Prom. And we had our first one last year and it was a huge success. Um, So we are going to do that again and it's going to be even bigger and better. Um, it is just a big old, uh, you don't have to be a mom to come, but it is an all-girl party. So if you're just a lady who wants to get with her girlfriends and come hang out for the evening and have some good food and some fun beverages and um, support Amarillo Angels, it is a joy. You have not lived, Jason, until you have seen 600 women storm the dance floor in all their finery, whatever made them say, feel is fancy. Is it like legit Yeah, people, people could, yeah, we just said wear whatever makes you feel okay. fancy. Okay. We had people in, you know, formals. We had people in short dresses. We had people in um, t-shirts and tulle tutus. Mm-hmm. We had um, a couple that came, uh, two girls that came as in tuxes like Dumb and Dumber. It was fabulous. And they just, we, if you haven't seen, they stormed the dance floor to do the Cupid Shuffle and it was Unlike anything I've ever seen, I, we will crown a prom queen. All right, um, and there will be lots of fun ways to support Amarillo Angels at that. And so um, we would encourage you to follow us on social media or sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we're on uh, Facebook and Instagram, uh, Amarillo TX Angels on Facebook, and just Amarillo uh, underscore Angels, I believe, or Amarillo Angels on Instagram. And then our website is amarilloangels.org, and you can sign up for our newsletter, and you'll have all the details. We sold out very quickly last year, right. and we're adding about 100 seats. But don't wait, because a lot sounds, of people didn't get in on it last year. It was like super a good fun. party. It was fun. We had a great time. So that would be what I'd want to endorse. Okay. Gwen Hicks, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Was, I appreciate it. Thank you. It was my honor to be here, and I so enjoyed visiting with you. 
And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Gwen for the interview. You can find out more about her organization at amarilloangels.org. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode. And thanks to sponsors Gott Wittenberg Emerson, Shim and Dental, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Jess Heredia, Wilson Lemieux, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Whitten. This has been episode 282. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>